I want to thank Dr. Matlock for that very generous introduction. Although he did slander me when he said I didn't know anything about Asbury. I do know a lot about Asbury. I just not have been here. I have many friends who studied here. Um, and I, I remember having coffee with Tim Tennant some time ago. And I certainly know the works of the distinguished scholar, biblical scholars in this seminary. So my heart is strangely warm. by this invitation. I don't know about you, but I am disappointed with the prophet Elijah, as he is described in our passage today. He was supposed to have been a bona fide hero of faith. Also, we are led to believe in the chapters leading up to this one. He had seemed larger than life, faithful, confident, and authoritative. He was able to bring about miracles through prayer and even brought a dead boy back to life. He was a role model for Jesus' ministry, for crying out loud. He has such a reputation that even Obadiah, the powerful chief of staff of Ahab's palace, was starstruck when he encountered him on the road. Is it really you, my Lord? Obadiah cried. Elijah had dared to confront a powerful king and call him a troublemaker. And he faced a mob of religious fanatics and silenced them. Against all odds, he called down fire from heaven, thus vindicating Yahweh against Baal. And as a result, all the people, we are told, immediately converted to the truth that he was proclaiming. And as if all that were not enough, he followed up his evangelistic success by outrunning the chariots of Ahab in a 17-mile marathon. What an overachiever, that one. <laughs> and yet all of a sudden, in this chapter, we find him easily intimidated by Jezebel. She wants to kill him for what he did to the leaders of her, denom her denomination. And so she sends a messenger to tell Elijah that she will do so within 24 hours. Clearly, Jezebel has something to learn from Donald Trump. That's a stupid strategy. If she wants to kill him, why not just do it? Send an assassin and finish him on right away today, not 24 hours. Exploit the element of surprise. <laughs> Instead, she stupidly tips him off and gives him enough time to escape. Commentators tell us that perhaps we should not press the details too much. This introductory account simply sets up the rest of the story. So we should do a close reading of scripture, but not too closely. And yet, ancient interpreters, often better close readers than modern scholars are, have discerned here a subliminal message of divine providence. Things are not as they seem. God may seem removed, uninvolved, and silent, and yet, divine will is being worked out quietly, imperceptively. 
imperceptibly. God may have the back of the prophet after all, and providence works even in the strategic era by Jezebel. So we get a hint at the outset of the story what it's about. The sundry, imperceptible ways by which God's will is wrought in the world. Duly warned, Elijah, Elijah flees to Beersheba, the southernmost town in the land of Yahweh's people. The narrator adds that Beersheba belonged to Judah at the time, meaning that it is beyond the jurisdiction of the king and the queen in the northern kingdom, Israel. Still, Elijah does not stay in that far enough safe place. Rather, he keeps moving south, which as Ambrose of Milan suggested long ago, must mean he was not running from Jezebel, but from his call. But where is he running to? He leaves his servant behind and goes by himself into the wilderness. Now, God had once told Moses to leave others behind and go by himself for a summit meeting with God on Mount Sinai, which is also called Mount Horeb, saying, Moses alone shall draw near Yahweh, but others shall not draw near, nor shall the people come up with him. So the fact that Elijah is leaving behind his servant is perhaps telling. After a day's journey into the wilderness, Elijah takes a break under a solitary desert bush. There he asks that he might die. According to RSV and NIV, he cries out, it is enough. But the Hebrew here is simply rav, much, too much. Too much. Now, O Yahweh, take my life, for I am no better than my forebears. Elijah's outcry recalls his earliest vocational forebear, Moses. For Moses, also in the wilderness, cried his burden was too much for him to bear. Moses cried out, saying, I cannot, I by myself, bear all these people alone. Too much. For me. If this is how you will act with me, kill me now, indeed. Moses, whose call could not have been clearer, the results of whose ministry could hardly have been more impressive, is tormented, so tormented by the whining, perpetually dissatisfied people that he's been called to lead, that he simply wants to die already. Those of you who have served in a parish, Surely, maybe thinking that you know what Jesus means. That you too must have said, I cannot by myself bear all these whiny, perpetually dissatisfied people. It's too much. And it's not just in the parish, I suspect. I suspect administrators who have to deal with faculty. Who knows? Who from time to time say, I cannot bear all these whiny people. It's too much. But Elijah doesn't say what's too much for him. Perhaps it means that everything in his ministry is too much for him. And he is no better off than his predecessors, starting with his role model, Moses. Even Moses found a call to be too much, and Elijah perceives that he's no better than his forebear, Moses. And so Elijah, like Moses, wishes to die. Indeed, like Moses, he would twice, in fact, complain that he's all alone. 
for those who are preparing for the ministry, newsflash, it's always been like that. It ain't going to change. It will always be too much to do the work of God by yourself. If you don't get that, and remember that, you may end up in despair like Elijah. For we are no better than our forebears. Elijah then lay down and slept. A much needed sleep, I suppose, after the depressing realization that it's all too much. Then he's touched by an angel who ordered him to get up and eat. He's provided with a cake baked on hot coals and a jar of water, hardly things that you might expect to find in a desert. So it must be divinely provisioned. Then as if, in case Elijah misses the point the first time around, there's a second epiphany, a second touch. The angel of Yahweh came back a second time, and he touched Elijah and said, get up and eat, for the way is too much for you. The point here is not that Elijah should eat so that he may be fortified because the desert journey is going to be too tough, as most commentators suggest. Whatever Elijah means by what, when he says too much, the angel now confirms that the way is too much. As before in history, Yahweh provides sustenance in the wilderness, divine providence knowing that the way is too much. And so the prophet complies. He partakes of the sustenance and duly fortified, walks 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. The 40 days and 40 nights recall the time when Moses spent, that Moses spent on the same mountain before the manifestation of Yahweh in that glory cloud. So that is where Elijah arrives, on Mount Horeb, after 40 days and 40 nights. And there he comes to a cave, or rather, as the Hebrew has it, the cave. The medieval commentator Rashi recognized that the text is talking about the cave, meaning, meaning the, the cleft of the rock where Moses once stood as Yahweh passed by. Elijah, you see, is not just escaping political persecution. He's not just going on a mountain retreat to recover from his burnout as a minister. No, he had walked 40 days and 40 nights to return to the mountain where Moses had once received the divine revelation. Elijah, it seems, is seeking, seeking a remake of the original movie, Revelation on Mount Sinai 2. This time starring himself as Moses. But of course, the real star of the original movie was not Moses, who was only a supporting actor. The real star of the original movie does not seem to follow the original script now. God does not seem to know anything about remake of the original. And God asks literally, what's for you here, Elijah? That is, what's at stake for you? What do you expect? So Elijah is forced to reveal his agenda. He voices his inner thoughts. I have been very impassioned, zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets on the sword, and I am left, I by myself, and they are out to kill me. Now the term for zealous 
or jealous is used theologically for God's passionate commitment and demand for the same. For Yahweh is a zealous, jealous God, or better, an impassioned God. The Hebrew connotes an intensity of passion and often implies anger. So perhaps Elijah means that he is passionately committed to Yahweh, and so Yahweh should be equally impassioned. This is what's at stake for Elijah, or this is what he expects, that God will be impassioned, as committed as God can be, as the servant is. Or is Elijah really saying that he's really angry for Yahweh, on behalf of Yahweh, because the Israelites have all been unfaithful. Yahweh should really be ticked off by that, but instead Elijah is the one who is impassioned for Yahweh. God seems too laid back. Instead of being impassioned, Yahweh is rather quiescent. And perhaps that is why Elijah calls Yahweh God of hosts, an epithet with militant connotation, God as warrior. So we read, I have indeed been impassioned for Yahweh and the God of hosts because the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altar, put your prophet to the sword, but I am left. I by myself and they're out to kill me. I have been impassioned for your covenant, your altar, your prophets, and it's all up to me, alone. As Moses put it long ago, if that's the way you're going to act with me, let me die already. Elijah is being impassioned for God, and God whose name is impassioned seems nonchalant. That's a pretty presumptuous thing to say to God. Yet neither Moses nor Elijah is alone in this regard. How often do we, even if we dare not articulate it, that God is not sufficiently impassioned? but rather God seems often so disappointingly quiescent. We are committed to be and do what God expects of us, to do what's right, what's just, what's good, but God does not seem equally impassioned. God seems insufficiently caring about all that is wrong in the world. And we are left by ourselves to do what we are called to do, fight injustice and racism and sexism and hunger and terror and a host of other problems that are just too overwhelming, too much for us in our way. It's all too much. And God has caused a way that is just too much while God is silent. Elijah refers to the Israelites as if setting himself apart from them, they have forsaken your covenant, they have torn down your altar, they have put your prophets to the sword, but I, I am left by myself. He doesn't seem to remember the enthusiastic response of the people on Mount Carmel, where we are told, when they saw this, all the people flung themselves on their faces and said, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God. Elijah doesn't seem to remember that. Elijah further charges Israelites with tearing down the altars of, the, of Yahweh, destroying the altars, even though it is part of the Deuteronomic program to destroy the altars and center it in Jerusalem. He accuses his compatriots of killing Yahweh's prophet, even though the only record of such killing is by Jezebel, not by the people of Israel. He also does not, he also does not seem to recall that Obadiah, one of the Israelites, had rescued a hundred prophets of Yahweh. So Elijah is certainly not alone. 
And it's Jezebel who's trying to take his life, not they, the Israelites. Now, surely the faculty of pastoral care and counseling here may point out that such a grossly distorted view of reality can be a symptom of acute depression. And they might corroborate their diagnosis by pointing out other symptoms as well that we find in the text. So let's see. General anger and moodiness, check. Weariness, twice you've been told to get up, check. Loss of appetite, twice you've been told to eat, check. Suicidal ideation, big check. <laughs> Blaming others for the situation he's found in himself, check. The sense is all alone and wallowing in self-pity, check, check. Oh, the man needs help, big time. He needs help bigly. Yet even in this regard, he's not alone. Even famous and worldly servants of God can fall into such terrible doldrum. Moses, Elijah, and countless others, unnamed women and men, including truth be told many of us here. We've had our periods of despair and doubt and depression. No matter how faithful, no matter how successful we do, from time to time, maybe even often, find ourselves in such a state because everything is just too much. In times like that, we are grateful that Scripture preserves the experience of heroes of faith, servants of God who have gone before, who have also despaired and doubted and suffered bouts of depression. But they and we indeed are not alone. And certainly we are not better than our forebears. And yet, calls, yet God calls us to return to the way. So we are relieved. We are relieved that Elijah, caught in a terrible state, receives no rebuke from God, no expression of disappointment, no dismissal. Instead, he hears the word of God saying, come out and stand on the mountain before Yahweh, for Yahweh is about to pass by. Elijah, no doubt, knows the tradition of Moses standing at the cleft of the rock, perhaps at this very cave, as Rashi suggested, and he encountered Yahweh's glory passing by. And tantalizingly, there are signs that typically accompany theophanies, appearing in succession. First the rainstorm, then the earthquake, and fire. The last of these, fire, is the climax. So long ago, the voice of God was heard amidst fire. On Mount Horeb. An appearance of fire on Mount Sinai, as Elijah knows well, decisively proved the power of Yahweh in Exodus. And yet, Elijah presently experiences the absence of God. Three times, Yahweh was not in the wind. Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And Yahweh was not in the fire. But after the expected climax, the text states with no verb, not even the verb to be, simply a soft sound of silence. Now, I do not know where the prophets, Simon and Garfunkel, got their inspiration for the sound of silence or a vision softly creeping. But I'm impressed that they more or less got the Hebrew right. There is no loud sound, no thunderclap, no booming, authoritative voice of assurance, 
No, Yahweh is not in the wind, Yahweh is not in the rain, Yahweh is not in the fire. But after fire, the most important thing is and one of my colleagues in Princeton, who's very soft-spoken, gentleman, wonderful theologian, and he was, as soon as he be listening to every word, he said to him, now the most important thing to remember when you go to the ministry is... <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much for the clarification. Nevertheless, in a testimony to resilience of human hope for the encounter with the divine, Elijah holds on to Yahweh's words. Come out and stand before Yahweh. For Yahweh is expected, for Yahweh is about to pass by. Expectantly, he wraps his face in his mantle, no doubt aware that Moses had been shielded as Yahweh was passing by. He ventures forth and stands at the entrance of the cave, which is where Moses had once stood. And again, he hears a sound, this time an unmistakable voice speaking to him. And the voice reiterates, the questions previously posed. What is for you here, Elijah? Elijah gives the same answer. Ramban, in the medieval exegete, suggests that Elijah here has given a second chance to answer the question. Only this time, in light of what he had just encountered, does he get the point that God may not come as one might expect? Yahweh does not come in spectacular ways as before. Moses, shielded by God, was only able to catch a glimpse of Yahweh's ochoraim, two backs, as the text says colorfully. That must have been quite a spectacle. Yet it was not a spectacle that mattered most in that event. For in the event, we hear Yahweh, Yahweh, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed and faithfulness. This is the name, the identity, the nature, the character of Yahweh. But Elijah doesn't seem to get it. Perhaps he's so expecting the spectacle that he does not hear the point of Yahweh's original pass by, namely the revelation of Yahweh as a God compassionate and gracious. Elijah, ever uncompromising champion of God, whose name is Impassion, Elijah, who has zealously ordered massacre of 450 prophets of a rival faith, Elijah, whose passionate commitments leads him to set himself over against his compatriots, is now given another chance to say what is really at stake for him. And he gives the same answer, same old, same old, unaffected, it seems, by the reminder of divine revelation. He's struck by the same theology, a theology so restricted that he cannot recognize that Yahweh is not just a God whose name is impassion, but also at the same time a God of compassion. Yahweh is a God compassionate and gracious. Given a chance, he doesn't seem to get that. Oh, surely he deserves a scolding for his bad theology. Surely he deserves a rebuke for a theology that's not more nuanced. A theology that's not sufficiently dialectical. He should have read Bart. Elijah has been given a chance to retake his theology exam, but he makes no changes, shows no growth, no improvement whatsoever. Great C at best. But Elijah is not chastised. He's not dismissed. 
Rather, Yahweh says to him simply, go, return to your way. He had earlier been told to receive divine sustenance, get up and eat, for the way is too much for you. Now he has asked, go, return to your way. As if he has already somehow received sustenance. And this is enough for now. Despite his foibles, even his inadequate theology, he is told to return to his way. His continuing journey in God's service. And his journey will continue for years yet. He's commanded to anoint Hazael as king of Aram and Jehu the Nimshi, uh, Jehu the son of Nimshi, Jehu son of Rizal. <laughs> and, and Elijah was to be ordained as his successor in the ministry. Biblical pop scholars point out there are historical problems here for Hazael and Jehu would not appear for decades. Not for decades later, in 2 Kings 8 and 9. Elijah could not have, the appoint, have not obeyed the commandment to anoint Hazael and Jehu. In fact, it would be Elisha who would announce to Hazael that he would be king. And it would be Elisha who will have something to do with the anointing of Jehu as king of Israel. And in fact, Elisha did not personally anoint Jehu. He would delegate all the disciples, an unnamed fellow, to do the job. So critics say here this secondary passage um, moves somehow from Elisha's cycle to here, misplaced text. Maybe so. Nevertheless, the charge to Elijah in, the, in its present context stands as an application, explication of the meaning of the soft, quiet voice of God that Elijah heard, but did not understand. The answer to the threat posed by Jezebel will come not in the spectacular and immediate manner as on Mount Carmel. Rather, it will come in a quiet fashion through the unspectacular unfolding of history. The answer will come not in Elijah's lifetime and not through him, at least not through him directly. Rather, it will come through the quiet working out of divine will in the course of human history. Elijah will begin with Elisha, but that will lead willingly, indirectly, imperceptibly to the anointing of Hazael and Jehu. Elijah's participation in the innocuous events of preparing his successor will turn out eventually to the restoration of the problem of Jezebel, her death in the reign of Jehu in Kings 9. Furthermore, contrary to the view of Elijah that he is alone, Yahweh will leave 7,000 who will not bend their knees to Baal or give him their allegiance. And it will turn out that an unknown prophet will, at the behest of Elisha, anoint Jehu. But we might trace the genealogy of the event all the way back to Elijah. In contrast to the events on Mount Carmel, these easily discerned, uh, uh, these things, there was, the Mount, Mount Carmel event was easily discerned as the work of God, the work of the prophet. But the success that Elisha's servant made could not have been easily discerned by journalists of the time. 
It takes faith to perceive that Elijah had done it. It all began with Elijah. This is how the will of God is often worked out. This is the quiescent word of God in history, that God comes to us often in unspectacular, silent ways. Elijah unexpectedly, unspectacularly begins to fulfill Yahweh's quiescent word by passing the mantle to Elisha in the countryside. Elisha was minding his own business one day, when along comes the old prophet who just takes his chariot and oddly throws the mantle on him and keeps going. What kind of ordination service is that? Elijah should stop and chase after him. I imagine Elijah should say, Hey, buddy, what's the meaning of this? But that's not what happens. Instead, it is Elijah who asks him, in effect, what's the meaning of this? The significance of this admittedly bizarre ritual of ordination is unknown. But Elisha does not hesitate. We do not know if there's something inside him, something inexplicable that drives him. But he drops everything and asks to follow Elijah. He asks only to return home first to bid his parents farewell. And Elijah tells him, go, return. It's exactly what Yahweh said to Elijah early on. Go, return. Our prophet succeeds. One prophet succeeds the other in being commanded, go and return. Elijah sacrifices essential equipment, the capital of his trade, to go into a second career. Some of us here surely know what it's like, how risky it feels, how scary it is to leave everything familiar behind, to heed a call. But this is what faithfulness entails. Elijah just throws the mantle and keeps on going, perhaps because he was just going through the motion in fulfilling the commandment, without any enthusiasm and conviction. You want to order him, fine, throw the mantle on him, and I'm moving on. No matter. The act of throwing a mantle, however thoughtful or thoughtless, was enough. Elijah may not know how it will all pan out, but he is nevertheless fulfilling the will of God. Scripture is like that. Sometimes God works in ways that we cannot perceive. God even comes to us, bringing salvation through a baby born out of wedlock in a homeless context. Scripture also teaches us that ministry may take different forms. Elijah was involved in social ministry, healing, political confrontation, and mountaintop rallies that converted a mass of people. But, he also in, but his ministry also involves the passing on of the mantle. Faithfulness to God's calling may entail the quiet preparation for others for ministry. So those of us who are called to be theological educators are charged again and again. When we are weary, go, return to your way. And all of us here today have Elijah as our forebear. And we know we are not better off than he. This our forebear was burnt out and ready to quit. He was doubting and depressed and he does not even get an A in theology. And yet for all his inadequacies, for all his despair, despite his moments of doubt and depression, God does not dismiss him, 
but accepts him just as he is, sustains him, and keeps calling him back to the way. Go, return. So colleagues, students, friends, in view of this grace, I say to you again in the name of God, go, return to your way. Amen.